Hey, welcome everybody. Uh, we're here to talk about our recent trip to Amsterdam. Uh, the focus of such trip was the American Bar Association's Cross-Border Institute back in the flesh after some, uh, some time off for, for a pandemic. Uh, we were overjoyed to see lots of friends and, and clients and, and, and uh, meet new people as well. But we wanted to do a little bit of a, a rehash of what we learned, some of the anecdotes, some of the takeaways. Uh, and, and to do that, uh, some of my colleagues are joining us here, Dan Regard and Dan Ruprecht. Uh, say hello, gentlemen. Hello, everybody. Hi, everyone. Welcome, gents. Uh, so I'll just dive right into it. I mean, I, I think we could cover off a lot. We could probably talk for, for hours about some of the issues that we discussed at the conference, during the events, at the lunches, you know, the sort of social social events. Uh, but maybe we could distill a few things for our, for our listeners. So we talk about cross-border kind of in the abstract. Uh, either of you, maybe you want to take a stab at this. What borders are we talking about exactly? And was there a focus at the event? Of, of particular borders? Generally, for cross-border, the challenge has been historically U.S. versus Europe. And it's oftentimes U.S.-based litigation that pulls in additional documentation from European-based parents or subsidiaries. Uh, there are obviously a myriad of other examples that can affect cross-border. Europe has established a fairly strong paradigm of having um, data distinctions for cross-border transfer between European countries that are inside the union or the economic area, countries that have been approved as uh, meeting their minimally acceptable level of data protection and countries that have not met those standards. So you could have a conflict between Europe and any country in the world that would have to be assessed. But most of the discussions are between the expansive discovery rules in the U.S. and the more limited data privacy concerns from Europe. Good. Yeah. Any thoughts on that, Mr. Ruprecht? Yeah, I echo exactly what Dan said. And, and I think this year in particular at the ABA, um, I was you know, very pleasantly surprised to, to, to hear all the different views from, from across the different jurisdictions. Um, you know, there is being an ABA event, uh, a strong focus on the U.S. and the balance of data protection and transfer of documentation to, to the U.S. jurisdictions. But as Dan pointed out, that's not the only area. It's a, a, a lot of uh, different issues that are at play even on the continent over here and, and other locations around the world. So uh, I was really struck by the variety that we had and the different perspectives, which is always welcome when, when we go to these ABA events. Yeah, I, I would agree. There was a really good um, European turnout at the event. L of course, lots of lots of Dutch friends and colleagues being in being in their host city, but lots of other people from from Germany and France and neighboring countries. It was a good sort of half U.S. half half European turnout. It was really really nice. Um, I, something else I wanted to, to bring up, um, and, and this goes to you first, probably, Mr. Ruprecht, and I can chime in on this as well. Uh, IDS are, a, are an international, globally focused data services company with, with a larger footprint presently in the United States. But as we expand into Europe uh, and, and successfully work over here, there's... I won't call it an elephant in the room, but Britain and the United Kingdom have left this thing we call the European Union. Uh, how does the UK 
and, and how did, how are the UK affected by some of these cross-border issues with the rest of the, the European member states? And, and how do you kind of foresee that playing out uh, in the future? Um, very, very good question. And, and it is something that we think about on a daily basis as we interrogate and investigate data uh, in and around Europe and, and over to the UK. Uh, so we're tracking this very closely. Um, in, in terms of the, the, the conference itself, uh, we were pretty much provided a window into the, the thought process and, and the analysis around data protection uh, through regulatory panels um, and, and really hearing from those who were in the room when they, when they developed the GDPR, many of which were British born. Uh, and are now part of uh, the, the Brexit uh, plan and, and putting regulations in place over here. Uh, so really starting to understand and get an, a, an insight into what hurdles are, are potentially in front of us uh, and what we've already resolved as, as we're now two to three years into the, the, the GDPR or even more. Um, and, and from that perspective, I think that we're sitting in a pretty good spot right now in the sense that we've reached adequacy in terms of, or in light of, of what the uh, European data protection authorities have, have deemed uh, a viable location for data to transfer. Um, but this is temporary and, it, and it's always going to be scrutinized in terms of how the UK is moving forward with its own data protection regimes. Um, one insightful bit of information that we received at the ABA is that there are a number of precedent setting cases that are coming through or instances that are coming through that will shed light on some of these guide rails. Um, but more importantly, there are some regulatory uh, initiatives that are in play in the UK that, that could affect this. Um, I know that I walked away from the conference with a reading list. I got to do some research based on a lot of the yeah. stuff that I heard. That's how I know it was a great conference. You know uh, that there are things that are that are in play and, and wheels turning uh, that require some additional research. And uh, and yeah, uh, very informative in terms of the the regulatory panel. But uh, what are your guys' thoughts? Mm. Well, I think. Please go I, ahead. I think one of the issues here, though, is. Um, when I talk to the regulators and other practitioners offline, not necessarily in the sessions, it's the admission, even if it's off the record, that the GDPR as written could not be fully complied with by almost anybody. Mm -hmm. And so now it's trying to understand if it's an aspirational target, one has to balance data protection with data usability. And, and that's really a challenge. And when it comes to litigation, there are legitimate legal grounds for needing to exchange data. The GDPR acknowledges that and it's uh, allowances for exceptions to the rule, derogations as they refer to them. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, um, you, what you don't wanna be is you don't wanna be the company whose case gets touted as the exemplar of how to interpret the rules. <laughs> That's an expensive, uh, honorific. Uh, number two, um, there are some other issues we didn't even get to address at some point during the conference. My group on e-discovery issues, current and emerging, still had an entire discussion teed up that we never got to address on the evolving definition of what a DSAR is and how personal data is being reinterpreted by in this case, German labor courts and German federal civil courts 
-hmm. in a very expansive manner in terms of what what email and what other documents communication within a company fall within the remit of a data access request. So um, there was a lot learned, as Dan points out, Dan Roop, as we refer to. And uh, there's also even more information that we did not address. So it's a very rapidly uh, changing area. I, I, I was also, I would say, before I, I turn back over to you, Tim, I was comforted by the ability to talk to some of the data protection authorities directly. And, and, and I found that they were very empathetic toward the situations that companies find themselves in and exhibited a willingness to work with anybody to explore options before it gets risen to the level of motions practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for that. Bo both of you. I, I share that sentiment. I, I found that the regulators were quite candid. They were quite open and discussing in a pragmatic bureaucratic quasi political way, of course, you know, their, their, their thoughts on some of these issues. Um, I was really keenly interested on interested in some of the, 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 the discussion around future adequacy for the UK, Dan Ruprecht. I yeah. mean, that was, that was something that I found extremely uh, compelling and somewhat revealing. Um, I, I won't, I won't cloud this conversation with too much uh, political rhetoric you might find in a daily rag uh, outside the train station, but some of the conservative leadership candidates here have been throwing messaging around in rhetoric or about sort of radicalizing or uh, ra rapidly changing the way the UK treats data protection. And that, of course, makes people a little nervous about an adequacy, adequacy decision with the, with the rest of Europe uh, and, and could potentially put the UK in a near sort of American position as a, as a third party transfer state to some, to some extent. But to your point, Dan Ruprecht, I think we've always had some of those concerns here in the UK with um, the Investigatory Powers Act, GCHQ, the Intelligence Security Services overreach, stuff that happens in France too. The yeah. DGSO, the DGSE, uh, uh, NSA in America, they all behave virtually in the same way. Uh, it's just a matter of, I think some of this boils down to uh, sovereignty and economics at some point, but we can, we can come on to that in, in a little bit. I wanted to shift over to you, Mr. Regard, um, for, for a more sort of American perspective, since, since you're, uh, carrying the flag over there, how do you, how do you see some of this in, in terms of data protection and data privacy law sort of evolving in, in America? We've, we've already seen states like California start to enact, uh, rules and regulations that, that in some respects match or, to, to, to some extent, follow closely those of, of European member states. Do you think do you think the U.S. is on a track to be as strict as Europe, or do you think sensibly they'll find some some balance between between being commercial and you know ha having data protection rights enshrined? You know, there was some um, tongue in cheek discussion during the conference that uh, America really started this data privacy war with our expansive discovery. Um, permit within the legal uh, paradigm and that Europe responded with its GDPR by basically saying, we're going to set up, we're going to write a set of rules that will stymie all American style discovery. 
And, but they wrote exceptions. And under the exceptions, which are appropriate in the derogations, it really has not fully stymied or in some cases even partially stymied discovery. So um, we speculated that maybe somebody got together in Europe and said, you know, we couldn't stop America's style discovery. So instead of making it stop, we're just going to make it worse. We're going to we're going to invent something that makes it 10 times worse. We're going to call those data access requests. And we're going to grant everybody, not only litigants, anybody, the ability to request all sorts of information. And it's going to be completely one sided. It's going to be all the responsibility of the corporation. And then we're going to export that back to America and show them how we feel about exporting obligations to each other. <laughs> and in fact, they have exported it. We've adopted it in California because of the size of California economically, geographically, population wise, and the way they've written their rules. It does affect every single state in the United States to some degree. And there are other states writing similar or if not identical access requests rights into their own data privacy rules. Mm. So um, I would say that you know, if you want to think of data privacy as a business enabling tool, we have mechanisms. You look at it a way of global economic um, tension and global economic interests. Europe is now exported to the U.S. some very strong obligations that we are now adopting. And it's of concern to a lot of the people who are attending the conference. Uh, these stars, while having really the highest philosophical purposes and grounds, have some really inefficient practical um, considerations. Mm. Yeah, the, 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 the rights of data subjects, those requesters and reality have, have a massive collision often uh, because, you know, give me my data, give me all of the data you hold about me is quite a loaded question. Uh, and nobody has solved this riddle. I mean, every single client we work with is effectively upside down uh, mm -hmm. financially when, every time they receive one of these things. It's not only that. It's, it's um, you know, when we first started in the world of computer forensics, we used to talk about grabbing the data soon versus delayed and the advantages and disadvantages of that. The disadvantage being you spend the money now and you might find out later you didn't need to. The advantage is that it's easier to grab information sooner than later. And I would describe that as the law of thermodynamics. Over time, data becomes less organized and more dissipated. Mm -hmm. And I think that's absolutely true for DSARS and personal information. Um, as businesses use information they gather in the normal course of business, that information gets pushed out to more and more departments, more and more applications, more and more business partners and becomes very diluted and dispersed. And so the ability for someone today say, not only do I want you to give me back all of my personal data, anytime you spoke about me, anyone you shared it with, I also want you to erase it and eradicate it, becomes an exponentially more difficult proposal as that data persists, per permeates, and, and traverses through an organization and through just business at, at large. Mm. So it's very much, a, again, a, a situation that is subject to the rules of thermodynamics and the inevitable migration toward chaos. <laughs> I'll call it data, data, data entropy in a form of chaos. I like it. I, absolutely. 
Dan Ruprecht, uh, I always like to look at things through a different lens if I can, just to, to get different worldviews. You know me, I like we go to different countries, try to speak their languages, try to understand what they're thinking. Um, when, when, of course, this conference and the, and, the, and the people on this call and a lot of the people in the room the other day had a vested interest in litigation, document disclosure, data-driven investigations. But do you think, do you think the the sort of root cause of the, the GDPR being written the way it was, albeit very similar to the directive from the 90s, but with stronger enforcement teeth. Do you think they thought much of data discovery that's American driven in their sort of consultations and their, their, their thought process? Or do you think they were more thinking about uh, uh, other areas? Are we being too narrow minded and kind of having tunnel vision in our own industry here? Um, I, I don't think they were directly thinking about uh, U.S. jurisprudence when, when when they developed it. I mean, certainly back in '98 when the directive was was enacted in in the first instance, uh, I think it was about managing you know the data that was at hand in in that particular period of time, and and then the the issues around sort of historical use of personal data across Europe and and some of the the pitfalls that have come you know decades. Uh, where, where information was used negatively in, in this part of the world. Uh, and I think, you know, at the, at the forefront and, and in the early instances of data protection, it was, is, was really about that, creating a, 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 an arena to, to protect those personal rights and make sure that those infringements don't happen again. Um, data evolution, however, has, has, Shown us uh, a very different story. Uh, you know, we're we're growing exponentially year in and year out in terms of data creation. Uh, data sources are evolving from from day to day almost in terms of uh, of what is being created and tracked on individuals. Um, so I don't think that they had that in mind uh, when they were first starting to go down the road of uh, of data protection. And and again, to Dan's point. Uh, it's 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 becoming a wild west in terms of well how do you get to that information when you start asking these hard questions that have very difficult answers uh, you end up in 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 kind of the situation where we're at right now where it is a bit vague uh, and it is a bit difficult to understand and when you start probing it, it feels a bit like a rabbit hole. Mm. Um, so, so I think the evolution continues, but uh, no, I don't think it it was uh, was envisioned at the outset that we would be dealing with it. That said, the the GDPR in in the last few years have have started to contemplate this any uh, a little bit more, and I think those various avenues that that Dan referred to, uh, you know how we how we can do this properly and still get through uh, the the data is is very much alive within the regulation, and I think it's part of the the, the decision process mm. one one final thought i'll come to before i i maybe uh go to you both and and perhaps myself as well for for a quick takeaway that we can we can tack on the end of this this is a little less focused on privacy and data protection but uh dr master victoria mcleod who sits on the the high courts uh bench here in the uk had uh a really compelling sort of keynote conversation uh, at the outset of the conference, and one of the areas uh, touched upon was was that of extremism, terrorism, uh, and, and ultimately how misinformation and disinformation kind of commingle these terms are used in the present state of warfare in Europe. Now, 
this is, seems a little bit tangential to what we're talking about, but I always, when I, was, when I was listening to that conversation, I thought immediately of data provenance, the authenticity of, of information, where it's coming from. Uh, Dan Regard, I know this is a, a sticking point for you. Did you want to make any comments about uh, the, the sort of provenance of information and how, how crucial that can be in disclosure exercises and, in, and investigations? Well, one of the things that we've worked on at IDS has been a number of cases of establishing or challenging data uh, points of origin and provenance. Um, establishing that data is legitimate um, has become a real uh, art because we've uh, learned that data has a lot of interaction with other systems. And so it's not just the data itself in a vacuum that is authentic or non-authentic. It's also how's the data life cycle been reflected in other secondary and tertiary systems that can confirm or refute the rebuttable presumption of authenticity. The, the issues related to the larger questions of data privacy are related because ultimately in order to enable data privacy, one really needs to be able to track, not necessarily control, but certainly track and document where data travels and which systems data touches. And so the more we know about the life cycle of data, the more we can segregate it and control it for data privacy purposes, the more that we can protect it for data for data security purposes, uh, the more we can control the way it's used for business and commerce, and the more we can authenticate it for any time there's a question of provenance, uh, whether it's uh, a fake or authentic. Um, all of these things, I think, are interrelated to how well do we understand the creation, management, and ultimate disposure, dis disposal of data. And so when Master McCloud spoke about fake news data, actual deep fake videos being used to swing emotions and behaviors in a theater of war mm -hmm. and whether or not digital crimes of this nature would fit under war crimes. And I, you know, I think the answer she came to was, if it has the effect of violating the spirit of various international treaties, then it fits within the definition of the treaty violations and the treaty penalties. Uh -huh. um, and I, I find it hard to disagree with that. Yeah. She laid a very compelling argument with real, significant real world um, circumstances and consequences. But validating that data um, even though it can be done or we can be invalidated, that is oftentimes well beyond the ability of the immediate consumer who sees a deep fake video today and doesn't have the tools or access to the um, secondary or tertiary sources to do that validation. Uh, so her keynote address was illuminating. Mm -hmm. it, was, um, it was certainly a call to response, a call to attention. I don't want to call it a call to arms because it was about a war, yeah. but it was a it was a call for action to understand and address how these issues affect us. And I think it definitely reflects on 
the core corporate systems we're talking about when it comes to data privacy and data security. Mm -hmm. Thanks for sharing that, Dan. Um, so Mr. Ruprecht, uh, a, a takeaway from the event, uh, give us, give us your 30 second rundown. Um, well, we've already touched on it a little bit, but, uh, it's one of the reasons why I like the ABA cross border so much. And, and really it boils down to the incredible, uh, topics and panelists that, that are on, uh, on each of the, the days during the conference and, and the event. Um, I always walk away with, uh, you know, thought-provoking ideas and, and additional research to, to really follow up on. Um, you, you know, you go to many conferences and, and, and you end up in echo chambers, whereas uh, I think the ABA, and in particular this year's ABA, had, had, had very strong, insightful panelists that were, were, were teaching as much as telling. Uh, and, and I really enjoyed that and, and, uh, and really appreciated that from, from the conference, as I usually do. Hmm. Mr. Regard. There were some very well-educated practitioners of data privacy there, the DPAs, corporate representatives, uh, individuals within uh, data privacy think tanks. They did not all agree with the interpretation of the current rules, mm. the historical basis for how we got to where we are or where we should go in the future. This is very much an area in flux. It's very much an area where uh, not only is it in flux, fairly small community of practitioners can have uh, each their own input and we can help shape the future of these issues going forward. It's an, it's an amazing um, community to be a part of and to think that our discussions could actually affect the way a big part of the world will treat data privacy in the next 10 to 20 years. Um, it's also a huge responsibility and I really appreciate it. The, the care and the seriousness with which the people in the room took forward that mandate. Hmm. Well, great. Uh, I won't take up any more of our our listeners' time. Uh, I want to thank uh, I want to thank you, gentlemen, for joining me in this conversation, uh, and uh, bid you all bid you all adieu. Thanks very much. Don't forget, you're supposed to have coffee both before and after the caffeinated conversations. So <laughs> that's right. Enjoy your coffee. Get late in the day. Yeah. <laughs> Depends on when you are. Yeah, sure. exactly. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everybody. Bye.